Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, 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 and welcome to this January 2020 episode of Buildings on Air. Buildings on Air is, of course, the show where we talk about left politics and architecture, sometimes more of one, less of the other. And football. And Internet, football. And, and football. football. Yeah. Um, how about them Liverpool? Hey, yeah. congratulate. By the way, I believe they're the first team since the Invincibles to go unbeaten in a calendar year. Yeah. Am I correct about that? I, yes, I, I think you're correct. And I think they actually had a better record than the Invincibles, too, because I think Arsenal drew twice, right? Yeah. In a calendar year. Well, so congratulations. We'll see. Uh, if they continue their unbeaten streak for like 12 games, they will uh, surpass the Invincibles. And that game is going to be against Manchester City at the Etihad. Yes, it will. Of course, they can lock it up now on, I believe, April 1st. Yeah, which I is a game against can, Everton. Yes, I believe they can lock it up against Everton. So, so that'd be amazing. What an amazing season so far. Anyway. Uh, I do worry, <laughs> and I'll, I'll just say this, you know, for sports commentary, I do worry that Jurgen Klopp is going to burn those guys out because they are yeah. playing at such a high level um, over, you know, what, four competitions? Yeah. Uh, and... You know, uh, you can't keep it up forever. That's right. Well, it's, it's all about that fitness and conditioning. Yeah, but you got—I mean—you got to win now. So, yeah. congratulations! Uh, uh, it's been a really remarkable season for Liverpool, and it's been thirty years since yeah. you won the league. So, uh, I'm, I'm prepared right ja- now to give it to you, Jamie. Have you have you ever considered having sports programming on Lumpen Radio? <laughs> I, actually, we have, uh, and we were going to launch one. Um, and it just it hasn't come to bear, but we we are working on it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we uh, if you're listening, if you've just tuned in, uh, I'm sad to say, uh, if, if the football talk excited you, will be the last of the hour, probably, maybe. Right. We'll see. Yeah, we do get into cycling if the year goes on. Well, we've got a really exciting uh, show lined up for y'all. Um, we've got two things on the docket. Uh, we're uh, for, first up, we're talking with Garrett Nelson Dash uh, about. Uh, or Garrett Dash Nelson, rather, about uh, Edward Bellamy. Um, in the Dash is a real name. It's not just like a hyphen. I, I'm, we'll have to we'll have to ask Garrett. I'm 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 that would be kind of awesome. Name. It's yeah. like Jennifer Eight Lee. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. My middle name is David, which is not exciting at all. See, mine's Harley, which is kind oh, of exciting. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. kind yeah. of exciting. Yeah. <laughs> well, after we chat with uh, Garrett, uh, we're, we have some some visitors in the studio uh, from the Garrett Rietveld Academy in Amsterdam, um, which will be really exciting. Uh, they've been touring Chicago, as I understand it. And so uh, in in a kind of replacement of our usual mailbag segment. And um, you've warned them about Lump and Radio. They've, they've had some warning. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not enough. Maybe not enough. I'll, I'll text Dan yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> but that should be interesting. It'll be cool to have an outsider's perspective on uh, the things that we talk about on the show all the time. What do you, what do you is, I'm horrified in Dutch. I, <laughs> We're going to find out, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll find out. I'll, I'll, I'll text my wife right now and find out. <laughs> Well, uh, without further ado, uh, we've got Garrett on the line. Uh, uh, Garrett Dash Nelson, he's the curator of maps and the director of geographic scholarship at the Leventhal Map and Education Center at the Boston Public Library. Uh, Garrett, are you with us? I'm here. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so um, welcome to Buildings on Air. And um, Garrett, you, you uh, maybe in the last month uh, uh, published an article in Places Journal. Uh, we're big fans of Places Journal here on Buildings on Air um, about Edward Bellamy and uh, his seminal book, Looking Backward. So um, maybe uh, just by way of kicking us off here, uh, you can tell us who, who is Edward Bellamy? What is Looking Backward? Why, a hundred years later, are we talking about this book? 
Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, are you sure you don't want to have a whole uh, episode on football? Because I think <laughs> yes. they it. No. Yes, we, we do, actually. <laughs> is, there, is, is there actually a team called the Invincibles? I, I was sitting there listening and wondering. Whether oh, you know, well, it's it's Arsenal Football Club from London. Uh, I see. Yeah, I mean, I unf- I come by this honestly. I grew up in the country. Uh, Kiefer's a Johnny-come-lately who's That's latched right. on to this uh, Liverpudlian side. I unfortunately grew up with my Arsenal fandom ingrained in me at birth, which is a <laughs> curse. <laughs> But yes, Arsenal Arsenal was a team that went unbeaten, and thus they were dubbed the Invincibles in 2013-2014. Yes. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Well, I was sitting here thinking that it's a, a, a you know pretty good name for a team to explain uh, <laughs> <laughs> your flag like that. It's, it's not as good as Hearts of Oak from Ghana, which I think is possibly oh, the, the greatest team name ever. Yeah, that is Hearts a good of Oak. name. That's <laughs> anyway, Edward Bellamy. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Edward Bellamy, very much on this side of the Atlantic, um, and I think uh, blissfully unaware of uh, professional sports, um, but <laughs> so uh, Bellamy's a, a fascinating guy. Uh, kind of a New Englander through and through. Um, he was born in the mid-19th century uh, in western Massachusetts in a town, Chicopee Falls, that was going through New England's industrial boom. Um, so during Bellamy's youth, he was kind of seeing uh, the Industrial Revolution take off in the United States. Uh, he came from a religious family, uh, kind of old Yankee family. His father was a, a clergyman, and uh Kind of growing up in that environment, watching the mill complex, it was literally just down the street from where he lived, uh, and yet being part of this kind of old rock ribbed Yankee tradition of moral uh, moral education and uh, small town life. Sorry. I think you see some of that set up uh, the path that he'll take later. Yeah, and so uh, he, you know, of course, Edward Bellamy is most notable for this book, uh, looking backward, and it's in its sequel, uh, Equality. Um, and so, is that is that right? Equality? Did I get that right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, and and that came out. Uh, what what year was that? Yeah. So they they're both published in the eighteen nineties, um, and they go through many many uh, reprints. Actually. Um, uh, looking backwards, it was published a little bit earlier in the late 1880s. Um, and Bellamy dies in the 1890s, which is one of the reasons why his um, kind of career gets cut short. Um, so Bellamy has a has a career uh, as a journalist and as a kind of semi-successful novelist, um, not, not well-known in literary terms, until he publishes Looking Backwards. Uh, and that book kind of explodes on the uh, at the end of the nineteenth century, yeah, and uh, looking backward, it's it's interesting. It's a it's a work of what you might call so- socialist utopian fiction, um, and and it has the remarkable uh, uh, feature of being the third best selling book of its time. And I and I looked <laughs> for fun at what the third best selling book is right now, and it's The Institute by Stephen King. So. Uh, <laughs> so, so <laughs> So uh, you know this is this is quite interesting um, because it c- yeah. could not be more different, I imagine. Um, so, l- what what is looking backward? Uh, what, tell, give us give us the kind of uh, plot synopsis of that book. So, looking backward, um, uh, Bellamy writes about this guy, this kind of classic Gilded Age capitalist uh, named Julian West, who uh, is kind of a plot tr- plot trick where. 
Julian's a bad sleeper, and so he's developed this, like, soundproof, fireproof room in his basement of his mansion where he goes to sleep every day. Um, he goes to sleep one night, and the house burns down. They don't find him because it's a secret room, and then he wakes up in the year 2000 to kind of learn about this future Boston um, and that plot trick is essentially the opening for Bellamy to spend the rest of the novel talking about what life will be like in this future Boston, 111 years in the future from his perspective, uh, and how its economic system works, how its society is structured, and what the city itself looks like. Interesting. And, and like any... Uh uh, I suppose best-selling novel. Um, there, there's there's a romance element to this as well, right? <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a silly romance where uh, the so he the, the main kind of narrator of, of most of the book is this doctor uh, in the year 2000, uh, Doctor Leet, um, and Doctor Leet's got this kind of spunky daughter. He friends uh, Julian West having woken up. Um, West is like this kind of curiosity. All these future Bostonians are like, oh, you know, you're you're this mummy of this like old barbaric age in the 1880s. Um, and anyways, uh, Edith Leet, the daughter, uh, it turns out is the granddaughter of the woman uh, to which West had originally been engaged back in the 1880s, and you know, goes from there. So there's this kind of you know sappy romance uh, that surrounds this book, which I think is one of the reasons why. Both historians um, and even a lot of uh, kind of movement socialists at the time kind of dismissed it as uh, not unserious or just a kind of like dime store book. Um, but when you actually read the thing, it's you see how Bellamy's uh, I, I describe it as kind of like a, a lecture wrapped in a romance. It's this little frame story of, of uh, a not very interesting, you know man finds his, uh, you know, descendant of his betrothed a century later. Um, But inside of that is all this, like, pretty interesting social and historical analysis, as well as a prescription for where he thinks society might be going. Yeah. Yeah, and and so so uh, he he paints a picture of of the year two thousand and in this kind of uh, so, social socialistic uh, um, America, um, and and maybe you can give us some highlights to give the listeners a kind of flavor of of the kind of things that that Bellamy imagines uh, in in this uh, utopia. Yeah, so one of the things that I think is really striking about the book. Um, and it's actually even more uh, prominent in the sequel, Equality, uh, is just the way that the city and the landscape itself are totally different. Um, so before he goes to sleep, before, you know, gets, gets trapped in his basement, uh, West is noticing how unequal Boston is, how you've got these slums that are right next to these really extravagant, uh, wealthy neighborhoods. And all of that's gone in this future Boston. You have what I almost would describe as a kind of like vast college campus or I I use the term garden city in the essay because of the way that it actually did um, uh, give rise to the ideas of garden cities in the early 20th century. Um, But it's it's a city that uh, where most of life is lived in public, right? Public dining halls, parks are really important. People are out on the streets. The economy is managed collectively. So the old 
kind of private features that dominated the Gilded Age city, private clubs, private houses, private mansions, private factories are just gone. They're not a part of the proposed 2000 future landscape. Right, and I, I think you quote uh, the famous architecture historian uh, Lewis Mumford, uh, <laughs> who talks about how uh, Bellamy wanted private life to be simple and public life to be splendid, which I think is a really a beautiful kind of uh, turn of phrase. Um, and I know, I know one of the. One, it's been a really long time since I read Looking Backward, but I, I, I do remember uh, one of the highlights, and you kind of cover it in the article, is uh, how all of the streets are uh, or sidewalks are covered, <laughs> and they have kind of have mm-hmm. awnings that unfurl when it's when it begins mm-hmm. to rain. And uh, the logic there is, you know, the, I think they, they they use a phrase like the imbecility of everyone carrying their own umbrellas and how impractical and ridiculous that is when uh, everyone could just be using one giant public umbrella <laughs> which I, which i think is like a, a kind of amazing stands in as a kind of amazing metaphor for the, like really what the entire book is about right yeah yeah that, that the metaphor about the the sidewalk umbrellas is a great one because really the, the sort of central conceit in bellamy's political program the idea that he lays out in these books is that the problems of the 19th century aren't going to be solved by more individualism, but rather by a more intense centralization of common resources. Uh, and that's what makes Bellamy, I think, pretty interesting for his era. Uh, the Gilded Age is the era of trust and monopolies, and a lot of the sort of liberal critiques of that time are we'll break up the trust, we'll break up the monopolies, we'll bring back this kind of redeemable era of smallholder entrepreneurial capitalism where everybody has the ability to take care of themselves will end the kind of exploitation of labor simply by creating a sort of nation of shopkeepers um, right. to, to borrow a, 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 a term from the other side of the, the Atlantic but <laughs> for Bellamy uh, he kind of he kind of rejects that and says it's, you know industrialism, the technology that's been unleashed by the industrial power and by modern science is never going to let us go back to this world where people are just, you know, self-sufficient and self-independent. What we have to do is provide for the common good through public agency, Hmm. right? So instead of giving more people their own individual umbrellas, why don't we just put a roof over all the sidewalks that rolls out when it rains? <laughs> more efficient, it makes more sense. It's the solution when people are living together in these new modern cities. Um, and that's just a kind of metaphor for all of the of economic functions, which Bellamy argues should get centralized together and provided as a public service. Yeah, and you know, what's so fascinating about this is it's, it's so impossible to, to talk about this without thinking through the kind of parallels uh, to, to our own kind of political moment. You know, um, people talk about, I don't know, the, 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 the two early 2000s as the kind of new gilded age, right? And kind of we have rampant inequality and all of these issues. And I mean, you definitely see in, in the kind of political platforms of someone like Elizabeth Warren, this kind of break up the trust 
attitude <laughs> and all of these other things. And I think a, a lot of people who are organized into groups like DSA, including myself, uh, you know, would say like, no, like, look, Amazon has, you know, made this amazing logistical network that could be taken over to really benefit the kind of mass of humanity to get people what they need in a very quick and efficient sort of sort of manner. Uh, the, the problem is how, how it's kind of run and to what ends. And so it's really interesting to kind of see that reflected. Um, the other kind of aspect that you talk about here with, with Bellamy is, uh, and it was an, another kind of current in socialism at the time, was a kind of return to uh, ideas of the kind of yeoman farmer and, 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 and localism. And that's also a feature of the kind of contemporary left. So it's, it's really it's really fascinating to kind of think through those comparisons just as a, as a matter of curiosity. Um, and I think one of the interesting things for me, um, thinking through Bellamy, is, is kind of how his book was related to organizing and and I and, and and you kind of mentioned there was all these Bellamy clubs that that sprouted up kind of fan clubs that ended up uh, kind of planting the seeds for for other things yep yeah the the, the, the movement that kind of explodes out of the books uh, in the 1890s and into the first decade of the 20th century is really astonishing and I mean it proceeds from the the astonishing fact that this book was so popular. And I think that's one of the things that I wanted to highlight here. You know, when Bellamy gets described in an American history survey, oftentimes it'll be in this kind of brief little, oh, this weird book, utopian <laughs> book, was like a huge bestseller and like it caused all these clubs and then uh, we'll just kind of move on from there. Um, if you pause to think about, you know, what does it mean that hundreds of thousands of Americans were buying and totally in love with this book that, like, honestly in places makes Marxism seem almost conservative, you know. <laughs> Bellamy is not shy about how intensely radical his vision is. Right. Um, he certainly was not clinging to any kind of centrist, gradualist moderation. And it, this, this book sold, it, it was only uh, the third best after the Bible and then her. Uh, <laughs> so it really was a phenomenon. <laughs> and these clubs, which, you know, I think I, there, there certainly is an echo to what's going on with the DSA and other, uh, other kind of organizations that, are, that have sprung up in the past decade in the United States, where people were really hungry for something uh, that they could organize around, they could get excited about, that would offer them some sort of political agency yeah. out of what was really a kind of grim time, uh, right. especially in American cities. Um, and so even though the, the, the clubs themselves, didn't, most of them didn't last more than a decade or a decade and a half, they were in some ways like a dress rehearsal for the progressive era. And a lot of the people who went through those clubs became important leaders, not only in mainstream progressivism uh, during the early 20th century, but um, in the Socialist Party, Eugene Debs. Um, these clubs were kind of a, you know, like a consciousness-spreading effort uh, in some ways. And that's, it's really remarkable when you think about the scale and the intensity uh, at which these spread across the United States, at a time which we often think of as being kind of conservative, uh, stuck in its ways, worshipping at the temple of uh, Gilded Age capitalism. Yeah. It's clear from Bellamy's success that there was a deep 
deep discontent with what was going on. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, I got it just, it feels so important to be talking about this history also uh, at, at this kind of political moment because there really is, and, and you do an excellent job of highlighting in this, in, in your piece, a kind of like real hidden history of a, of a left-wing populism um, in, in America that is, is, is kind of weird uh, because, you know, it, it's appearing in America, but, but it's, it's a kind of super important legacy that, you know, like you said, often gets brushed over in school, <laughs> like, and doesn't really get discussed. You know, we, we kind of have these end, end of history narratives that are still out there that just kind of, kind of hide all the, all of this stuff from us. But, um, you know, reading, reading, reading these kind of articles, I mean, it really, uh, for me, for me, it's kind of inspiring just to think through all, all of the kind of potential i i don't futures <laughs> uh and 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 the kind of idea it's it's really comforting to know that in a lot of ways we're standing on the shoulder of giants here i guess is what i'm trying to say <laughs> and not just yeah, kind of on our own know, yeah that's that's totally right and you know the bellamy uh movement spread around the world too people in europe were reading this uh in fact the leaders of the the german social democratic party were kind of freaked out by it because they felt like it deviated from the Orthodox Marxist materialist uh, prescription for what was going to happen. Right. Um, people were it was translated into a bunch of languages, and then it really did. And there's something interesting about Bellamy in which it was both, in some ways, more radical than what was going on in um, some currents of international socialism. But it was also, and you know, this is worth considering. It was also a plan for reform that was somewhat less class conscious, mm. and that allowed it to get absorbed into the mainstream of kind of bourgeois social reform right. in the United States. So it's got this interesting place where it's, it's populist and radical and, you know, super well publicized, um, but it has, because it doesn't rely on such a materialist view of class mm-hmm. conflict, um, or at least not in exactly the same way that Orthodox Marxism did at the time. Yeah, it 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 was taken up into the kind of reform wings of the political parties in the United States that were trying to do things like provide better public services, gradually acquire more and more sectors of the economy for the public. Um, what you might think of Fabianism in the UK, mm. very similar to what comes out of the Bellamy movement in the United States. Right. Um, and so it's interesting to think about how this, this, this kind of flash of excitement and radicalism in the United States both it both has a real current of uh, like a real legacy in, in how it was taken up, um, but it also did sort of flame out in other ways and, yeah. uh, and, uh, and have kind of less of a lever on history um, than some of these other movements, which had a more a dedicated structure and party organization around right yeah because one one of the one of the things you highlight is kind of because of this kind of religious kind of yankee upbringing <laughs> that bellamy had yeah. he, he was a real believer in kind of if you if you make the moral argument like that that will be kind of persuasive uh in in its own in its own way and it, it is really yeah. interesting to kind of trace that history because it's like 
uh, as you're saying, it, that's a complicated legacy because in some ways it's really true, but, but there's also a kind of, uh, you know, uh, maybe upper bound, bound to that, but, but activism mm-hmm. happens in complicated ways and, and <laughs> things like this plant seeds that grow, uh, in, in, in unexpected fashions. Um, I know yeah. one, one of my favorite books is, uh, it, it's written by, uh, Manfredo Tafori and, and some of his, uh, uh, comrades teaching at uh, IUAV in Venice. It's called The American City from the Civil War to the New Deal. His name is Manfredo. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a dessert. Yeah, <laughs> it does sound like a dessert. Like a really yeah. nice Venetian dessert. <laughs> yeah, cause, and, but he, he talks a lot about this kind of time period in, in urbanism and how, uh, you know, a, a lot of, uh, and of course, him, him being an orthodox materialist Marxist is kind of very critical of, of the way that, you know, all of these things ended up kind of stymieing um, uh, worker militancy, um, but but yeah. to my mind, it's always you know it's a give and a take, right? Uh, you 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 got to do something, um, and it's all kind yeah. of positive uh, mostly. Um, and so and you you talk about the kind of planning dimension of all of this, which I'm I'm totally fascinated by, because um, as as you can mention in the article, like the 1890s is when city planning is being invented as a discipline a- alongside like landscape architecture. A lot of the, the same people are doing that work, and and I'll, and I and I hadn't realized how many of them were like huge Bellamy fans. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things that I that I really tried to pull out in the piece is the way that, you know, Bell- lots of people read Bellamy, um, lots of poli- people who would go on to roles in politics and reform read him and were influenced by him, but I think one of the places that you most clearly see a real legacy from that moment is in the fields of urban planning and urban reform, partly because those fields are... are kind of in genesis at this time. They're searching for a reason why they exist. They're searching for a political program. And of course you have lots of currents that are flowing into that. Everything from, you know, kind of big city beautiful projects that are really friendly to capital and uh, urban development that's led by capital. Um, but a lot of city planners are, are come to this profession because they see just how ill-suited private capitalism is at that time to creating healthy, just, decent cities. Um, And Bellamy is one of these books where over and over you read people's autobiographies or biographies of um, planners and urban reformers of this time, and they'll say, you know, reading, looking backwards as a teenager or early in my profession was one of the things that really flipped a switch for me and made me think about how we could be designing cities that were in the name of the public rather than just doing this kind of ornamentation for the wealthy. Um, and so the everything from a kind of hard municipal socialism, which you do see in a few places in the United States around the turn of the century, where cities are actually outright acquiring services like streetcars and electricity, all the way from that to more kind of reformist uh uplift activities like the provisioning of public parks or playgrounds, bathhouses, are in a real way inspired by that Bellamy movement. And, and you know, the, the idea that maybe that future city of Boston that Bellamy described in 2000, like, maybe we can actually get there. Maybe we can actually build this thing. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and, and of course, you know, we're, we're broadcasting live to the city of Chicago right now. And uh, yep. so, so some of our some of our listeners might be familiar with the, the beautiful Chicago boulevards, our amazing tree lined streets, Grant Park, uh, the amazing uh, Beaux-Arts field houses that we have all over the place. Um, and, and these are kind of direct products of uh, kind of the Garden City movement and, and, and also in a lot of ways in, in inspired uh, the, the kind of European uh, uh, Garden City thinkers. Um, and so that's a really interesting way and it, to, to think about it um, that might kind of bring it home uh, to, to some of you who are listening out there right now. And of course, you talk about municipal socialism, and I think that's often another kind of hidden history here um, and kind of how, how important um, municipalizing public utilities were and how that was very much a kind of part of this movement that sprang up around this book. Um, and of course, I'd be remiss to mention that right now there's a campaign going on to municipalize our electric grid in, here in Chicago, um, to take it, take it out of the hands of ComEd and uh, put it in the hands of the people, which is uh, super exciting. Um, and I think kind of on that score, I mean, uh, electricity being a technology and all, I think one of, one of the interesting things for me uh, about Bellamy is, is his kind of particular relationship towards technology. Um, you know, obviously this is kind of a utopian book, um, but I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of, kind of speak to that because this is, you know, a big question on everyone's minds right now is kind of what is, what is the left's relationship to technology? Uh, how, do, how do we approach kind of automation and these kinds of issues? Um, so maybe, maybe if we look look backwards at looking backwards, uh, we can find some help here. Yeah, I think, you know, what's really interesting about Bellamy is that, in a sense, he admires what industrialism and what capitalism had done and what science had done. He admired the sort of leafy residential districts that had been built for the bourgeoisie. He admired things like city beautiful design. <coughs> but he had this sort of moral protest that, they were producing uh, they were producing affluence that was only accessible to a very limited mm -hmm. few. And perhaps even kind of more central to his critique was that they were doing it wastefully and inefficiently because instead of designing for the greater good or producing for the greater good, they were churning out material, urban districts, factory products in a competitive and wasteful manner. Um, so what Bellamy's real essential argument was that instead of going back and undoing the, the kind of forces that had been unleashed by capitalism, what we should do instead is to take over those forces and manage them for everybody, mm. uh, rather than pretending that the forces themselves had led to inequality and had led to oppression. Um, and it's an interesting critique, right? Um, you know, I think if you were alive today, Bellamy would probably look at something like Amazon or, let's say, the credit card companies mm. and say, you know, it's actually, and there's a sense in which uh, it, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense to uh, furnish goods centrally or to, like, to track payments centrally. And if we did that in a way that was owned by everybody, that everybody was essentially a shareholder in this massive national corporation, if he uses that phrase exactly, yeah, um, that's interesting to describe the sort of economic organization of the future, then that would be better than if we just kind of toss away these technologies and assume that there's something 
exploitative inherently written into their very essence. Right. Right, and I and I mean, I, this is this is, you know, how we how we often talk about it on the left. Socialism is is a kind of democracy of of economy um, that's equivalent to you know democracy of politics, right? <laughs> yeah. And those becoming and, one I mean, and the that, same thing. That framing is all over Bellamy, especially in Equality, which is in some ways a more sophisticated book because uh-huh. um, he had he, he published this bestseller, and then he, he decided, well, I need to go back and and fill in all the details, um, which he did in Equality. And he really links it to this kind of American um, tradition of revolutionary change. And he describes his proposed future economic revolution as being just the next step in the, uh, you know, the, the change in human emancipation, which had started with the American Revolution in the 1770s, um, saying that we need to do for economic production and the distribution of goods and services what we had done for political control over our lives. Essentially saying that if you have political liberty without economic liberty, then you don't really have very much at all. Um, So there is this kind of almost small R Republican appeal to this this red, white, and blue American (laughs) tradition of you know, let you know, let's throw off the, the the sort of old regime. Let's throw off the the, the era of feudalism uh, and actually do things as a people, um, rather than be let the people be ruled by uh, you know a, a tiny sliver at the top of the social pyramid. Yeah. Well, and, and I and I and I love also uh, this kind of twist where you know all of a sudden the the market a free market economy is 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 the kind of inefficient and bloated sort of thing because that's so mm-hmm. opposite the way that it usually gets talked about, right? It's like oh, the markets are the most efficient way to do everything, <laughs> blah 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 blah. And I think you know for a show about architecture, anyone who's ever worked in architecture or the building trades <laughs> like knows like exactly how wasteful all of these bidding processes and everything totally is and uh i think one of one of the kind of quotes you have here um which is fantastic is you know he talks about how you know when you look at the way that the state runs you know war or uh, defense right uh that's a highly kind of centralized and planned economy um i think uh you know the (laughs) the quote here from your piece is you know why couldn't the same logic be applied to kind of the uh, peacetime purpose of attacking misery and poverty. Uh, and then the character, Dr. Lee, asks, who are the public enemies? Are they France, England, Germany, or hunger, cold, and nakedness? Which is, uh, gosh, just so, so incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned how uh, sort of architects and designers see this. I, I think there really is an intimate connection between these design fields and the need to organize things as a public, because in a sense that, you know, the design of a built environment is inherently something that connects people and then is in between both individuals and firms. And it's why, even to this day, private enterprise can be so uh, inefficient and wasteful in the way that it uh, produces things, right? Because essentially you're, 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 individual economic interest ends at your lot line or it ends at <laughs> right. your, you know, the, 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 where you specifically can make money. And certainly in the late 19th century, city had all sorts of examples of crazy neighborhoods and, you know, factories being stuck next to tenement houses and 
all these things that made sense from an individual perspective but made no sense whatsoever from a public perspective. And so I think that's one of the reasons why the, the kind of reforms that we now think of as urban design were one of the first steps for the Bellamy program to realize itself in the real world. We could design streets the right way. We could provide public amenities. We could run municipal services, public services through the city government rather than, um, you know, at this time you had like multiple different streetcar lines that had inter, uh, you know, different fare systems and, you know, would overlap each other and couldn't transfer from one to the other. And it's a classic example where why not bring that under public control? You have a single <laughs> uh, fare system. And, yeah. Um, you know, so a, a lot of those ideas about what is public rather than private have uh, obvious resonance in design and planning fields. Yeah. Well, and, and Garrett, we've got a, just a couple minutes left here. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, looking backwards, uh, an amazing book, clearly. If you'll forgive the pun, there's so many looking backwards puns you can make. It's amazing. <laughs> if, we, if, we, if we look forwards, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious if there's any kind of uh, books or film or, or kind of, you know, cultural products um, today that, that you kind of look at and say, oh, that's, that's kind of similar. Um, it's, it's kind of hard for me to, to think about any, really. Um, do you think there's... Yeah, a, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's funny, I, um, one of the first that jumps to mind is uh, the film Sorry to Bother You, I don't know if you've yes. seen it yet, but um, <laughs> what, uh, I, when I saw that, I, I was actually kind of struck by it, like, I, I really haven't seen any other movies or, or very many books that are, are kind of like engaging with the weirdness and the, the like supreme kind of perversity of our, of, of like life under our modern yeah. Of our modern economy, our modern social structure. Um, I, I, I think that increasingly we're like, people who are, are producing culture are aware of our own enmeshedness in a, um, you know, an, a political and economic system which is which has some serious uh, structural issues. Yeah. Um, and I and I think you know when you think about looking backwards. Um, it's easy to say, oh, it, you know, it's just a kind of junky novel compared to the more sophisticated political treatises of the era. Um, but, you know, uh, there's something to be said about a junky novel <laughs> yeah. in, you know, in, in getting hundreds of thousands of people uh, on the side of a, of a, of a broad-based movement. Yeah. And it's especially inspiring to see one that has that like articulates a, a very kind of positive vision of the future. I always think that people, you know, are, are kind of most inspired to organize and struggle uh, when they kind of have a positive vision to organize around. Um, like, yeah, I, I, I recently saw the film Parasite, which I, I highly recommend people seeing. Yep. And, I, and, and one, of, one of the most amazing things, I, I was trying to think about why it's like a horror movie, because it's it's like, you know, there's lots of jump cuts and kind of violence and things like that. But but ultimately, I realized that the actual horror of that movie, it's just very visceral. It, it comes from the lack of solidarity between the characters. Mm -hmm. Like, that is the horrifying part of the film, which I found to be like quite, quite beautiful, but like certainly not something that's going to like inspire people to like organize together necessarily. <laughs> well, South Korean horror is not known for organizing people. <laughs> yeah, you know, I do need to point that out. Of course, yeah. Well, well, yeah. well put, Jamie. <laughs> 
Yeah. So yeah, you know, I think I think we've almost been trained to be skeptical of utopianism, right? Uh-huh. Both uh, both from the right, which dismisses it as impractical and dreamy, but there's a certain um, element of left thought that's um, you know also skeptical of utopia yes. as a as a distraction. Um, and of course, utopia is never going to be a, 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 a formal plan of practice. Yeah. Um, but it does get us somewhere. And, you know, I, 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 I perhaps not reach the level of a uh, cultural production, but I would say that a lot of the thinking about Green New Deal work, although mm-hmm. it, 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 in its very name it's framed uh, somewhat retrospectively looking back to the first New Deal, I mm-hmm. think there is a thread of utopianism in, yeah. in uh, some of the Green New Deal stuff, which I applaud. Mm-hmm. Um, in insofar as it at least dreaming of what a better world might look like, uh, and I would love to see more of that, um, yeah. more of a commitment uh, to you know what what where are we going? Where what might we want to do? Yeah. Um, well, I think yeah, I, I you know I I'll confess that I'm often one of those people who's skeptical of utopianism, just often because I see an architecture kind of architects inventing utopias amongst themselves, and 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 it occurs to me that this is a, a wonderful kind of template for uh, engaging with a wider public and the power that kind of utopian thought uh, can have when it is engaging in a really public way. And I think, as you point out, the the Green New Deal is an amazing opportunity for that. Um, Garrett, I think that's a great place to to wrap up. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, joining us, calling into Buildings on Air here. And uh, uh, hopefully some people will uh, uh, pick this one up. At a minimum, I highly recommend you read uh, Garrett's piece in Places Journal. Um, And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, and uh, I, I heard earlier you're, you have uh, the Garrett Reedfeld Academy folks on, so it's yes, <laughs> have an yes. all Garrett. Uh, uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, already, I already made that joke. That's, that's good. That's yeah. good. Yes, I'm, I'm glad I'm right on top of you. Yeah. yeah, they're coming up after the break. They, they seem mildly terrified of this entire thing, but uh, we'll see what goes on. Yeah, Garrett, thanks so much. Thanks again for having me. Yep, take care. Welcome back to this January 2020 episode of Buildings on Air. Uh, and this is our regular segment, The Mailbag. Um, Jamie, maybe... Oh, have, I should have played some yeah, music, you, yeah, shouldn't you I? Should have, you, there's, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me get on this here. Yeah, it's... Uh, you know, let's just confess. I had a bad holiday. You know, I was sick <laughs> the entire time, and I'm really just not up to snuff here. But yeah, Anne's going to kill me. Let's play this. There we go. There we go. All right, there we go. That's right, folks. It's the Buildings on Air mailbag, and uh, that's where we usually answer your listener questions about architecture in the built environment. Uh, but as I teased, uh, we've got a little bit of a different format today. So we've got um, folks visiting from out of town, um, esteemed emissaries uh, visiting from uh, Amsterdam, uh, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna answer Chicago questions, I suppose. Uh, we've got the usual folks here, uh, and. Louis, Craig Reschke of Future Firm, and Craig, how are you guys doing? We're good. And, Great, thanks for having And me. Dennis, who also shares office space with us, just a block down from Lumpen Radio World Headquarters. <laughs> it's, it's great to be here. Awesome. And uh, 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 Nick, I suppose, Nick Axel, uh, editor of Eflux, amongst other things, who is the kind of uh, uh, ringmaster of, of, of this. Nick, would you, would you care to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so thanks so much for having us. Um, my name is Nick. I, I starting a few months ago, I recently became the head of a small, uh, quite 
curious and bizarre uh, architectural design undergraduate department in Amsterdam at the Art Academy called the Rietveld Academy. Um, and as kind of my my first uh, my first foray into leading this department, I figured what's a better way to um, blow people's minds than to bring them to a place or to a continent even for most <laughs> that they've never been to and to a culture that they've only seen on TV. Um, yeah. So uh, for the past week, uh, 12 of us or well 14 in total um, from Amsterdam with uh, with students from all over the world uh, primarily Europe but but beyond that as well um, we've been we've been popping around kind of from one place to the next to the next inside Chicago yeah and uh, what have, what have some of the highlights been so far oh my god it's a uh Every day has been so different from uh-huh. each other. I mean, the the city is is kind of so incredibly varied in in kind of every neighborhood. Um, I mean, we we just came from from spending some time with Manuel Pratt from the Sweetwater Foundation, um, which was really mind blowing. It yeah. was also freezing cold, <laughs> but it was uh, that was really quite incredible. Yeah. Um, but then you know we started out the tour uh, or started out the sorry the the trip. Um, at the top of the Willis Tower. Yeah. Or, well, sorry, Sears Tower. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> well done. You've learned a thing here in your time. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it was it was funny. You know, when you're up that high, it's really like a it's kind of like an authoritarian's dream or a megalomaniac's <laughs> dream, right? Because everything just looks like a toy. Yeah. And I don't know if that's like what, you know, if it's that like the SimCity, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, condition or something. Yeah. But it just, it everything looked like candy. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, we're, we're absolutely thrilled to have you all here. And uh, now we're going to rotate in uh, some, some of the students who are going to kind of um, uh, ask us some of these questions. All right. Um, and and, 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 and is... And I'm going to make a stab at remembering all their names, too, which is, is good. And you, you're raising your hand. You yes, want to ask a I'd like to intervene because I want Dennis to introduce himself and explain him. Why are you sitting here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm still trying to understand why I'm sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> you were in the area, Dennis. Yes. Yes. So I'm in the vicinity and I got called up. So um, as Kiefer mentioned, um, when when we, he was introducing everybody here, um, Borderless Studio, um, which I'm uh, part of right now with Paula Aguirre who has been running uh, Borderless Studio since 2016. And has been on Buildings on Air before. We and, love and Paula. And has been here <laughs> yes. before. And so um, we are sharing space with uh, Future Firm as well as Keeper Dunn Architects. And so we got this uh, nice little space right down the street from here that we're um, working in, collaborating in, however you put it. Yeah. It's It's been a, a wonderful transition from where I've been in the past, <laughs> uh, say, 13 years or so. It's it's definitely a, a change, change yeah. a changing game a little bit. Well, uh, yes, uh, welcome, welcome. That will get you invited to be on the radio. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> so welcome, welcome. All right, now to actual questions, because this is the mailbag segment, not just, hey, let's introduce our friend segment. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Jasmine is our first student. Jasmine, take it away. Thank you. Um, so yesterday when we'd been to the Frank Lloyd Wright's personal house and studio, um, we went for lunch at a local diner, um, oh. and I asked for a glass of water, and he called it a Lake Michigan. So I was just <laughs> wondering if you have other, like, fun Chicago sayings. Oh, uh, this is a great question. This is a really good question. I, you, Craig, Craig is the resident Chicagoan, so... 
Oh, but I don't know. Do we have anything? I've, I've never I, heard anyone frankly, I've never heard Lake Michigan. Yeah, yeah which I'm gonna one. I'm gonna pick that like one the, up. I like that too. I mean, we can say something well, like the jewels. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the, we have nicknames for food products, though. I mean, you have the mother-in-law in this neighborhood, obviously, which is what it's the hot dog and a tamale with French fries. Am yeah, I correct? Yeah. And the depression dog. Yeah, you don't don't make that face, Craig. You've eaten those at Johnny O's. Come on, don't don't do that. What about what you people call soda? Pop. You people. <laughs> you guys call it pop. <laughs> and what you call tennis shoes. Um, huh? Gym shoes? Yeah. Oh, well, I guess so. Gym shoes yeah, is like my shoes. grandfather's generation, though. Yeah, yeah, well, like, there's there's also the Chicago mm. accent leads to certain things. So, uh, famously, you know, it's not two or three things. It's two tree. Two tree things. Two tree, yeah. Yeah, and so there's, there's that. Um, two tree. And then in, in, in terms of thinking about libations specifically, there's there's the famous Chicago handshake, mm. uh, which is an old style and a shot of Malort, um, <laughs> which yeah. is a regional, regional liquor that you can only find in Chicago. Um, uh, and if you guys stick around, I'll buy you all a shot of Malort later. Uh, <laughs> no one tell it. them what it is. No one tell them and what it is. And they have to drink Yes, it. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't, guys, just I'm warning you right now. Don't, don't, do, it. <laughs> don't do it. Are there any other – I mean, I don't know. I mean, the, the only thing that I, I, I think of as really Chicago is the L. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It, because it, that's known worldwide, too. An elevated subway system is not unusual to Chicago. I mean, New York had an elevated railway as well. But we're pretty much the only one that still has one that's not fallen down yeah. um, and is known worldwide. So, uh, And in terms of thinking about architecture specifically, um, what, Chicago does have this unique thing called – well, I, I don't know if it's unique in this world of architecture, but the front room as a thing, uh, which is fr- front room. <laughs> okay, it's the room that's in the front of the house, right? Okay, but it's the front room, and it's like it's kind of unique in the world of uh, Chicago. Two flats and three flats are regional typology. But it kind of takes the place of like a, a working class parlor, right? It's it's kind of a living room and place to greet guests and entertain. And we uh, should mention what it would mean for people that, you know, you guys aren't going to know this, but a, a Chicago two flat or three flat is if you've been walking around this neighborhood, you've seen them. They're mainly brick buildings, as yeah. you guys, I'm sure, Nick's shown you. And they were the turn of the century, uh, lower middle class and middle class housing. Yeah. So, so um, and, yeah. and it's a worthwhile housing type to really study, uh, I think, um, in terms of housing, housing work. Workers. I mean, all of these houses were built very affordably. This was a working class neighborhood. And uh, it's amazing to kind of see the density that those kind of two and three flats create on these wonderful long lots that we have here. Cool. All right. So we got another student whose name I've already forgotten. So introduce yourself. My name is Robbie. 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 Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. What's your question, Robbie? So, uh, yeah, I'm from Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is, of course, known for being the wheat capital. Yes. Of the world. <laughs> and while we were here with New Year, we uh, stumbled up on the legalization of <laughs> wheat in Chicago. And yes. uh, we've been to a few dispensaries, but there were really long lines. Uh-huh. <laughs> so unlucky for us so far. <laughs> but is Chicago going to take over the title of wheat? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. I don't know. J- Jamie, you, what do you think? Uh, you know, I think that, well, we sold uh, the the... the the total sales in the first day were $3.7 million. And Ooh. I think the next day it was also $3 million. So already we've racked up, I think, close to $7 million in sales. I think, um, and this, by the way, it, it, this is actually a really good question and something we've talked about on another show that I do um, because – um, as regular listeners to this show know, my wife has a medical card. So before uh, cannabis became legal for recreational, if you had a serious condition such as MS or glaucoma or cancer, you could get a card. 
um, and it would be an alternate treatment to taking painkillers, basically. Mm. And as I'm sure you guys know, we have a huge problem with opiate addiction in this country. Um, people were sold huge handfuls of Oxycontin and uh, basically heroin derivatives. So one of the reasons that, that marijuana was legalized in the city um, aside from the fact that most people didn't think it was that harmful, was to bring equity back to communities that had been really hurt by a longstanding war on drugs that had been waged since 1970. Um, And it's interesting because you're here at a really interesting sociopolitical time where this is a really big experiment. We we actually don't know how this is going to work. As to your question, is Chicago going to become the weed capital? Well, it's been legal in California and Oregon and other states for quite a while. And the results have been mixed. From a money point of view, um, the feeling is, and and there's some studies about this that say, because weed is called weed for a reason, it grows quite freely. You know what I mean? Any moron can grow weed. Um, By throwing a seed at the ground, it will grow. Trust me, I know, and I'm a moron. Uh, you, You know... People think that as the product increases in cultivation, the price will fall, which is what happened with tobacco um, and has happened with with, uh, other products like this. You know, the only reason beer, for example, is at a certain price is because there's price fixing because you can't sell beer below a legal limit because it's considered bad for people. You know what I mean? Mm. If price fixing collapses in marijuana, uh, it's very interesting. We could see – you could see joints being passed out at hotels. I do think – You know, as mints. I think talking about equity around weed in Chicago is really important, yeah. right? Yeah. We need to look very quickly and constantly at a map of where licenses are being issued to sell marijuana in the city. I think a lot of people in the city feel that the neighborhoods that have been hardest hit by the so-called war on drugs uh, should be actually the first to kind of benefit from any economic reward that's coming out of the legalization of marijuana. Right. Um, and I think that um, so many times in this city where there has been a kind of um, uh, uh, economic bounty to be had, it has been distributed in, inequitably. Um, and I think that that's why where licensing for marijuana stores is happening yeah. needs to be watched kind of with a with a wary eye on the longer history of the legalization of marijuana. Yeah, it's super city. important. Yeah. yeah. And to be just to go to Anne's point, you know, t- I think there's 38 places or 43 places now. Almost the majority of those are owned yeah. by by white middle class. Yeah, or and like all there's two, or, on, and then there's only two on the south side. Correct. So, there's only right. two right now on the south side. And one of them is owned by the guy who owns Charter Fitness. I think. I think that's the <laughs> Herbal Care Center over in Western. Now there there are uh, there was um, uh, two days ago, um, and I, John Daly, who does another program on the show, is a is a lobbyist for the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. He's been working very closely with uh, Coloring Cannabis, which is a group that's trying to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who have been shut out of this business involved in it. So they did turn in applications, I believe, for 42 licenses, and they're hoping that they get 30. So I, I, your, your question, I mean, is is a really actually a really interesting one, and I think it's going to be fascinating to watch what happens in terms of the tax revenue that the city of Chicago desperately needs. You know, so the Chicago, uh, as I'm sure you probably knew before you came here, we've, we've had a number of problems in this city, and uh, a lot of them are economic. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't have uh, – people are leaving the city, and our tax base is going down. As you, I'm sure you've seen from walking around this neighborhood, the south side and the west sides have been historically disadvantaged. We need money for schools, and we need money for roads. Our roads are not as nice as the ones you guys have in Amsterdam. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, th- we have some problems here. <laughs> so, you know, the, it's people are counting on this to make some money. So it's yeah. going to be very interesting to and see. I, 
I think it's not, I mean, and last it's like, it's not just licenses, right? Because of systematic disinvestment in the south and west sides, like the availability of storefronts, the availability of small mm. retail spaces, the, avail- the ability of people of color to get retail leases that are often three to five years with banks that have kind of discriminated against people of color. Like it's, it's, it's the license, right, for the business, but it's all the attendant things that come with running a business that are, are not kind of equally distributed in Chicago that I think we need to look at as well as well as being excited about edibles. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hey, uh, by the way, I do need to remind people at the top of the hour, you're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. The FCC likes it when I say that. Uh, my wife also, by the way, texted in and wanted me to note that another Chicago saying was East on Ashland, ah. which is a very Chicago thing that means you're going completely the wrong direction. Yeah, right. Because mm. they're... You, you they're Ashland. Ashland. The joke is Ashland goes Rose north-south. north-south. <laughs> yeah. uh, Vana, right? Am I correct? Froyan. Froyan, I'm sorry. Vana's over there. Somewhere. All right, Freya, go for it. Cool. Uh, I'm wondering why is there no trash can outside? And also, are people uh. smoking here? Because this trash can has never a way to put off my cigarette, and I always <laughs> struggle. <laughs> so, yeah, two questions. Yeah, good questions. Excellent question. There should be more c- trash cans on the street here. Uh, there's a couple on this block, when yeah. I think about in front of Morgan Street, but I don't know if the city has a policy on where to put Explain trash allies. cans. Yeah, we do have – Chicago is a really clean city. I don't know explain if you've noticed alleys. that. I'm seeing some yeah. nods. Anne, yeah, Anna's also telling me that I need to explain alleys, which is uh, – <laughs> An alley is a place between two buildings. <laughs> I guess it's Where supposed to be a future is. firm specialty. Oh, it is uh, a future firm specialty. Yeah. yeah. In Chicago, we have s- these small alleys behind every building where the trash cans and garages are. So a lot of times there are not trash cans on the street, but like when you're walking the dog and you have something to throw away, you, uh, you, something that comes from a dog, go down the, go down the alley and throw it in someone's trash can. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we have this amazing grid in Chicago that just goes into infinity, but the major streets are every half mile. And usually those major streets have like street trash cans periodically. But if, if you're not on one of those, you're kind of, you know, you got to, you got to go down an alley and kind yeah. of secretly I, throw something into someone else's trash can. It's I, actually I, kind of interesting, too, because of the way that the trash cans are distributed across the street. As Craig mentioned earlier, there's about two or three right down at one intersection. Yes. Right yeah. there. But like you can go like four or five blocks and not see a single. Yeah, one. there doesn't but, appear to be a rhyme or reason. Uh, yeah, and, and, and another thing that's quite interesting, if you look at some civic buildings that are closer to downtown, McCormick Place area, whatnot. Um, you'll see a lack of trash cans. Yeah. Know, for well, there's there's a reason. That, yeah, I was going to say there's a reason. Oh. For that, right? yeah. And so you you will not. They don't want people throwing objects within the trash cans. Right. So, so that happened after 9/11. Um, w- there was actually a British um, recommendation because. Um, Sadly, in the 1980s, when the IRA was very active in in Scotland and England, um, a lot of bombs were set off at railway stations by people putting bombs in trash cans. So the way they got rid of that was by pulling the trash cans so people could not leave explosive devices in them. After 9-11, a lot of cities, New York started it, but Chicago followed quite quickly afterwards, pulled all the trash cans under that same fear. Um, There also is a point to be made about cigarettes, which, you know, you can't put your cigarette out. Well... Technically, it's illegal in a lot of places now in Chicago to smoke, even if you're outside. Uh, public sphere, um, public parks, you know, the front doorways and stuff. So they they took away um, some of the places where people, you know, used to have ashtrays and stuff like that around. 
they took those away because um, it was against the law to smoke. Technically, like, for example, in front of the co-prosperity sphere where you're at right now, you can't smoke within 30 feet of the doorway. Uh, the nobody, everybody ignores that, particularly <laughs> Kiefer. Kiefer, yeah, in you're always, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Kiefer's terrible about that. But, but that is also <laughs> another reason why you don't see that. It's because um, – there's a legal reason. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know if there's any fines associated with that. Probably in this city, we find people for walking down yes. the street backwards. So, yeah. you know. So, yeah. Well, welcome to America. We've had like questions <laughs> about like, uh, like, like what water cig- cigarettes and weed and like, you know, that we're already on like race relations <laughs> and 9 11. <laughs> you know, it's uh, there you go. Welcome. welcome UFOs to are coming next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Ishka, did I get that right? Iskra. Iskra. Okay. Yeah. I'm close. I'm, I'm three for Very four. Close. <laughs> Very close. <laughs> Well done. Um, I'm curious, does anyone ever defile the Trump Tower out of protest? Like, be ah. against it, throw eggs, toilet paper, this kind mm. of stuff. There, w- there was a proposal to float giant gold pigs in front of the Trump sign off yeah. the river. Which uh, we we had an interview on on the show um, yeah. with those architects. Um, it it almost came to fruition, but I'm not sure if the funding quite came, got to be. Yeah, available. they were approved for that. Yeah, but what about just like throwing things at the tower? Well, look, I know whenever there's a there's actually there's a march happening right now against you know um, a war possible Iran, I, yeah. war with Iran, yeah. and um, um, that's where I would be if I wasn't here. Um, but anytime there's any kind of march or like <laughs> remotely political activity like Chicago PD like locks down the area around Trump Tower immediately um, which is which is to be expected um, yeah. and even 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 before then um, you know there was always when when there was lots of um, Black Lives Matter marches and, and things like this. A lot of times, those would originate in the loop in some of the public buildings and these amazing, uh, you know, public public plazas that we have there. And they would march north towards the wealthier areas of the city. And the Chicago police are really, really good at shutting down all of the bridges to kind of keep those marches from from going into the wealthier areas um, and, and kind of containing things. Um, which I, I, I mean is is fascinating to to study as a spatial phenomena um I, yeah but I'm, I'm sure people have tried and we haven't heard about it <laughs> um, yeah but the, the fully, answer is yes we should point he was run out of town too he he tried to speak at uic uh before the election and uh he was chicago was one of the few places okay. that would not let him do that yeah so congratulations to our, our chicago yeah, civic people who uh you know, run fascists out of town. <clears throat> That's just my su- opinion, by the way, not the opinion of Lumpen Radio. Yes. We fully <laughs> support you trying to throw things at the tower while you're here and making a quick getaway. Yeah, making an international uh, maybe, incident maybe, out yeah, of just, it. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a call to action. That's just a suggestion. That's a joke. A satire, satire, satire. <laughs> we'll see you outside. <laughs> maybe maybe not in a foreign passport. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> our, next, our next question. Um, and introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah, my name is Herman. I'm also Herman. from the resort from Amsterdam. Uh, I'm interested in this studio here. And how come and what is this building? And how come you're here? Uh, and how come you're in this neighborhood on the south side? Yeah, Those are these are amazing questions. Are yeah, questions. Uh, J- Jamie, I'm going to throw this one to you again. Yeah. Since okay. you're, you're the since I know. Yeah, since I know. Okay, so you're sitting in a, in a space called the Co Prosperity Sphere, which is an arts incubator and has been a um, long time space for um, outsider and activist artists. Um, it is an art gallery, a performance space, a community space. And I think that last thing is the most important thing of all. It is designed as a space for members of the community to come in. 
uh, meet each other, explore ideas, and, and talk. Um, you know, there aren't many community spaces that um, are not bars. And I think the the people that funded this space and founded it were really – and they came from bars, by the way. They, they owned bars. So they, they knew the importance of that. But they also knew the importance of artwork and getting people with different ideas and different um, – from different stratas of society together to meet and discuss and, and learn about each other. Um, why is this radio station here? Well, I'm going to tell you a story and you're going to think I'm joking and sadly I am not. So um, a number of years ago – the FCC, which controls radio licenses, opened up a part of the spectrum to community radio stations. And this was actually an attempt to really give um, hardcore right-wing Christian stations more room on the dial. That's actually why they did it. Um, they wanted to give more openings to what we call religious broadcasters. And you ended up getting, uh, you know, well, we, we applied for left one. architecture. Well, yes. So <laughs> we, we applied for one and then promptly forgot about it. And th- this is not a joke. We, we sent in the application and then yeah, you know, whatever. A couple of years go by and we get a call and, hey, congratulations, you've been awarded a radio license. And we were completely, I can't say the word on the air because it, the FCC won't let me, but we were very surprised <laughs> at this news. And so we had to come together and raise enough money to open the station. And uh, this station, I'm, I'm very proud to say, um, we've been in existence now five years and been wow. on FM Radio 3. We're entering our fourth year right now. Came together for a shockingly low amount of money, built this station with uh, begged, borrowed, and perhaps purloined equipment. And, um, you know, I've been here since the beginning. I'm the this, this station manager, and I produce most of the talk shows. But this is an extension of, of our entire philosophy here for the Public Media Institute, which is to allow people from the community to come in and meet people from other places and, and discuss things and give um, airtime to people and groups that wouldn't normally get it, such as left-wing architects, <laughs> who nobody is clamoring yeah, no to one, from. No one wants you to know, listen to I mean, uh, yeah. and, and students from Amsterdam, <laughs> um, you know, who just kind of walk into the studio and they're like, hey, you're going to go on the air in five minutes and you're, you're sweating and you're terrified and, you know, there you go. Uh, but that's that's why. And, and, and it's because really, uh, to be candid with you, most of us here can't do anything else. <laughs> you know, we're kind of, you know, I, I actually spent 30 years in, in broadcast media before I came here. I worked for ESPN and uh, a company you guys know as Sky overseas, but is known here as Fox. And you can now start throwing things and, and booing me. But I worked on the sports <laughs> side. Um, and when I came here, um, it was because they didn't really have anybody that, you know, was very familiar with the equipment or had a license and all this. And um, I've been given a lot of money not to work for Fox anymore, which was a delight. So um, it's been really rewarding to come in here and work with all these different people and, and hear different voices and, and meet different people because this is very different than going and covering uh, – I used to do World Cups actually. And I would go all over the world and cover men running around in their underwear kicking a ball. Uh, which <laughs> Sounds is great. <laughs> it's, it's very sexually satisfying but, <laughs> but not, not, you know, as riveting perhaps as leftist architecture shows. So that, to answer your question, Herman, that is, that is why we are here and that is also why I'm here. Yeah. And I don't know why these guys are here. These guys showed up on the first day I was here and said they had a show. Yeah, right. And I believe them. So you know, that's gotcha. my fault. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we've done a lot of interesting shows as the architecture lobby in this space. Like, I, it's it's really uh, an, an amazing kind of resource to have uh, just down the block from the office. It really, it's kind of amazing to feel like a part of the community. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and uh, introduce yourself, buddy. My name is Jermaine with A.N.E. And um, I was wondering, what's up with the toilets here <laughs> and the lack of privacy? Uh, Wait, can you ask your question more? 
Yeah, um, like, in more detail. What are what are toilets like in the rest of yeah, the world? Yeah, for you, what is up? Because for me, it's until, normal until we respond. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, right. I think it, I actually think it's probably about the two inch or fifty millimeter split between the door and the rails, and so you can see in. Yeah. To the, to the tell, tell us more. <laughs> I do not understand the question. It is that it is also that you can easily. If you stand on your toes, watch inside the toilet. Uh, what's it called? Cubicle? I don't know the word. Yeah, the English. toilet stall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the distance between where the door starts and the floor is so big, mm. like there is mm. no privacy at all in toilets mm. here. Yeah. Hey, it's good. yeah. That's a really good question. <laughs> well, well, part of it is it might come down to economy, and you might laugh at me because the bathrooms here are very large in the United <laughs> States compared to Europe, but. Um, you know, there's there's clearances that are required uh, right. to maneuver within uh, toilet compartments. That's that's one of the reasons. It gives you a little bit of space. If you're in a wheelchair, you're able to maneuver your the feet of the wheelchair in front of there, uh, front of the the partition. Uh-huh. So that, that that's that's one of the reasons that they're uh-huh. there. Oh, so it's but, the ADA requirement. Yeah, so uh, so the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. So that's that's one of the reasons that is there. Another reason could be you know just economy. Yeah. And it's a uh, it's actually a little bit cheaper not to go full height with the partitions. Yeah. And mm. that's something that's just become kind of common practice with the, the introduction of ADA. Yeah. I think that it also has to do with cleaning, that when yeah. the door is higher, when the janitorial staff comes in, they can push a mop under the door right. or mm. under the partition. That makes sense. Economy of time. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. And <laughs> we're just like really, really, all these questions really do like strike at the core of America. It's like hire less cleaning staff. <laughs> like be more efficient. I'm really surprised it's, it's the question of uh, lack of privacy versus the grandiose scale of the restrooms here. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say I have two two stories about this. <laughs> uh, so one, one, <laughs> well, one is, I, and I'll, this this may be, be uh, another buildings on air, but it's it's again football related because because of course with this show. But in I, when I was visiting Buenos Aires, I went to the River Plot uh, Football Club uh, mm-hmm. Museum, which is attached to their stadium, and they have these stalls <laughs> where right. <laughs> <laughs> they have these stalls that go all the way up and down. And uh, I I opened the latch and I heard a horrifying snap, and uh, the and and I realized after thirty seconds of jiggling that the latch had broke. And I was stuck in this bathroom, <laughs> and uh, I, I and I, I don't speak very much Spanish, so I opened up Google Translate, and I was like, "Okay, help! I'm stuck in I, a bathroom." Ayuda, and I, which is you know not a real, not the way you pronounce that at all. And so I'm just like yelling, "Ayuda, ayuda!" And like no one, you know, and, and everyone's like, "Who is this?" Uh, and anyway, I got out after about 45 minutes, um, but it was it was quite. He quite was the in the experience. bathroom. I just want to say he was in the bathroom almost an hour. Yes. <laughs> okay. So if you're worried about your privacy, Jermaine. <laughs> he was stuck in the bathroom That's almost right, an hour. Yeah. They do. How did you get out? Um, eventually, um, there was like enough clearance at the top. There was some, <laughs> and a screwdriver was passed over, and you know we sort of pried it open. It worked out. Yeah. Um, so someone came it, to your rescue. So, so you, yes, so you this, call that working was, out. Yes, exactly. This was the impetus for me to uh, learn Spanish, um, <laughs> which I'm currently quite far along in. So, so he's also saying that you 
need these things because people like him will get stuck in American bathrooms. Americans get stuck in bathroom stalls. Stuck in bathroom stalls. Yeah, could be it. What's yeah. the, what second the second story? story? The second yeah. thing is like in in like if you fly through Atlanta, Hartsfield, Jackson, which is where where I'm from, um, they they're at the forefront of of bathroom stall technology there now because <laughs> and it's also like air, airports have really big stalls because uh, people have luggage and whatever else, but now they have lights over all of the stalls, and so when the when you lock the door, uh, the the light turns red, so you can immediately tell which stalls are occupied mm. and which ones aren't, which I think is amazing. <laughs> Do you have a paranoia that you are going to enter a stall that is already occupied? Yes. Do you not? No. I mean, if somebody's oh. already in there, I, mean, <laughs> I just look at it as a chance to meet another human being. <laughs> in the most intimate fashion possible. Well, yeah. Sure, you know? With, yeah. the, with, with the, the lack of privacy, I guess you, you can see it. That's like the future firm bathroom, Kiefer. It's a lottery. Yeah. Yes, it is. The, really, though, the architectural issue is the rest of the world has figured out that you can have a small colored disc inside the lock yeah. to show you red or green and only in Atlanta where they like let's put in some more electrical <laughs> wiring and put in some lights. Yes. Uh, yeah. God bless it. <laughs> uh, Atlanta. It's also one of the only airports where you can smoke in. They have weird smoking rooms. So mm. maybe if you've got a connecting flight through Hartsfield Jackson, there you go. <laughs> okay. What's your name? Fanny. Okay. Uh, well, I think I've never eaten so much uh, like greasy, uh, <laughs> deep fried food in my life. Yes. <laughs> You're welcome. So I was wondering if people cook at home and if they oh. do, what do they cook and where do they get their fresh produce? Because also yeah. in supermarkets, I practically <laughs> didn't see any fresh vegetables and fruits. Yes, oh, good question. Yeah, no, and All right. yeah you can good question. <laughs> okay, so this is a good question. Uh, the main food groups in Chicago are meat, cheese, and bread. Yes, yeah. that's Oh, yeah, true. Dennis should tell the story about how he got sick on Friday from eating <laughs> a vegetable. I, I did get a little bit sick. It was it was more of a headache rather than any uh, we any have other a, issues, We have a group but. text. We were supposed to meet Paula and Dennis, and then Paula said, Dennis ate one vegetable. He's sick. And I said, you never feed Midwestern husbands vegetables before they have to go out and do something. You can only feed them beige foods. Yeah, you can only feed it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Beige foods. It's potatoes. I can't wait to go home now. Yes, <laughs> Potatoes, uh, uh, overcooked steak, and then uh, maybe some yeah. corn. Cheese, bread. Cheese, bread, yeah, those are fun. Uh, mushroom but your question, casserole. So your question is really actually really interesting. <laughs> so I, I cook all the meals at my house. We, mm. My wife and I do not eat out, which is bizarre since I work for a group that's in hospitality. There's food all over the place. But a lot of people um, who are professional in big cities don't, don't cook. Um, and in fact, my wife's parents used to store their books in their oven, which I found <laughs> horrifying because like, what if you try to turn the oven on and like all these <laughs> books go up, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, why is this? So why is this? Um, part of it, and this, this actually is a really interesting question because it kind of cuts at how Americans, um, think about work. A lot of Americans get up in the morning and the first thing they do is have a cup of coffee and maybe nothing else and, and go right to work. And they eat their lunches at their desk that are usually a takeout. And then they come home and they're usually too tired to cook and they don't have time to go to a supermarket yeah. to get food. Yeah. So a lot of Americans, um, particularly in kind of my age group, I'm, I'm in my 50s, you guys are in your mid-30s, that, that kind of professional range um, <clears throat> never really got comfortable with, with either learning how to cook or how to shop for 
long periods of time and and moreover how to make meals quickly yeah you know i i grew up in a in a very different i, I grew up overseas and, and emigrated here when i was uh, a younger kid and um my mom who's scottish which is almost as bad as being dutch um <laughs> would never ever let us eat out and would never buy anything she called it store-bought that was that was pre-made food because that was considered both sinful in a very presbyterian sense and uh wasteful Okay, so you had to learn how to make everything. And um, it's been really interesting for me now because, again, I, I make three meals a day for, for my family and um, do all the cooking, all the shopping. Uh, and I, I love it. This is not a complaint. It's just a, a fact. <laughs> but I'm, I'm surprised when I meet people and particularly, you know, we get a lot of people coming through the CoPro who are interns who are interested in cooking. And they've, they've come over and, like, I've tried to teach them how to do various things. And the, the basic lack of kind of – first knowledge about yeah. like this is what an oven does at certain temperatures or, or this is how you chop a vegetable or this that's that's really been forgotten yeah. by a lot of americans so it's 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 a cultural thing that that you're, you're really but it comes down to how people work in this country yeah. and i think it's a very unhealthy way to yeah. work in this country um as for finding fresh vegetables and stuff um it's one of the, better yeah, I mean, you, you probably were not just at, like, larger markets. But this time of year, it is harder to find um, things in season. Remember, we are, um, aside from the lake and the river, you know, we don't have um, – we're, we're not a coastal city. You know what yeah. I mean? So we don't necessarily get, like, fresh fish. That all has to be brought in. And many of our vegetables are coming in from California or Florida right now. Yeah. Um, and our crops this year also because of the weather, uh, we had huge rains here. So a lot of our native crops were actually washed out. Illinois had its worst crop year ever. Um, so some of the things that we would normally see on the shelves, we don't see. And finally, some of the things that you guys might be used to, a lot of Americans don't know what to do with, like root vegetables, um, parsnips, beetroot, um, things like that that are, are more popular in you know, where I grew up and, and what you guys get. Those are things that Americans look at and they're like, I don't know what to do with this thing. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's really interesting because they just were never taught about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, and, I, and I think a lot of that has to do with, okay, I'm always like, I'm always at like a, an evangelist for this book on this radio show and in my classrooms, but William Cronin, Nature's <laughs> Metropolis, amazing book. Um, and if you haven't read it yet, you absolutely should. I think it's like a must read for any architecture student. But um, he really talks about, you know, Chicago's uh, foundation is really tied up with the mass manufacture of food, specifically meat. Uh, one of the nicknames for Chicago was the hog butcher of the world. And so uh, all, all of the kind of cattle and, and hogs would come in live uh, to the Union stockyards, which are just, you know, like literally like half a mile down the street, or they used to be. And um, then they would go through this amazing kind of uh, and, and, and brutal uh, process of like mass slaughtering and trans transformation into sausages and all kinds of other things, which, you know, meant that that was the cheapest food available a lot of the time. Um, and so I think that that's part of part of the legacy also um, that's still felt here. I mean, our, our, our city food is a hot dog because <laughs> they're dirt cheap, uh, dirt cheap in this part of the world. And yeah. uh, I think I think that's a big part of it, too. Yeah. I don't know. Do, do you guys, Ann and Craig, do you guys cook or you guys eat out, though, don't you? Half and we half. We do. Right? We do both. Yeah. But I would say that we are functional in the kitchen. 
<laughs> I made I made a really good soup last uh, over over okay. uh, New most, Year's. I find most ar- architects are generally like really good at cooking. That's like I think a stereotype. We can like follow directions. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, do, I'm assuming you you asked the question because you cook at home. I'm assuming and cook. Do all of you cook at home? Just yeah. Yeah. oh wow yeah. yeah. That yeah, would see, that would like, be very unusual. That would be unusual. An architect, yeah. especially amongst like architecture, architecture students yes. in America, like who survive almost exclusively on whatever's in the vending machine uh, in the yeah. studio. Or ramen, <laughs> ramen, the great student food. Yes. Yeah, I mean that that isn't that's unusual, and it is it's deeply cultural. But at the same time, now the the flip side of that is, I mean, I, I'm painting that as a negative, and it's I think it's a negative because I'm a Scottish miser, but. Chicago, the flip side of that is we have one of the most vibrant restaurant communities yeah. in the world. You know, Chicago really is a world-class hospitality city. And if, if you guys are here, um, you, you may have noticed, you know, uh, that you basically can get kind of any food stuff in the world. I would, I would say only New York and London uh, really rival what we have in terms of the breadth of cuisines and and the kind of influences that come into our city, so there there is that because we do eat out so much. Um, this is probably one of the few places where on one block you can get food from Ethiopia, and it's very authentic Ethiopian food and, and outstanding Ethiopian food, and and get Korean barbecue on the next and get excellent top grade sushi on the next and. You know, it is not the classic Midwestern meat and potatoes anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just all, all, all diner food either. Mm-hmm. We really do have an outstanding um, restaurant scene here. So there yeah. is something to be said for that. Yeah. And if you want an apple and lettuce, you can get two-hour prime delivery from Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not selling anything. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, I, that's I not want, a call to action. I'm yeah. curious if they talked about food deserts with um, Sweetwater. Oh, I don't know. Did you? Oh, did you guys this? know what a food desert is? Yeah, yeah, talk about that for a second. What? And go. No, I don't know if I can. I'm just thinking that, yeah. like, also access to produce is also not even in the city, but there are some. Issue. Yeah. <coughs> so a food, a food, a de- yeah, a food desert is basically, and um, Bridgeport used to be a food desert. Actually, um, it's a place with no access within walking distance for people to get fresh produce, fresh meat, or even basic necessities, and until. Um, about 10 years ago, we actually we're, – we're a food desert. We did yeah. not have a supermarket. Mm-hmm. We now have, I think, three or four in walking distance. But, but it was actually, you know, technically a food desert. There are other spaces. In fact, just um, the next neighborhood over is Englewood, and they've been really hit hard. They don't have um, yeah. access to fresh stuff, and, and so they have a lot of um, storefront takeout places. Um, and a lot of people in this city, uh, because of that, they live on that. And as a reason uh, for that, you know, some of our life expectancies in this city are fairly low. Um, and, you know, to talk about it from a sociological point of view, it is based on racial lines yeah. as well. The city is is divided quite heavily between black, white, and Hispanic, uh, quite evenly. But the dividing lines are geographic. And um, unfortunately, you know, if you cross 42nd Street, you're, you're heading into a majority African-American or black neighborhood. And uh, the life expectancies in those neighborhoods have been going down and, and access to food is one of the major issues. I yeah. just brought up Sweetwater because it seems like there's a lot of interesting yeah. kind of community groups doing urban farming, thinking about different ways to address food deserts that is about kind of local resiliency rather than yeah. city scale resiliency or kind of dependency on um, like national scale logistics systems, which I think is like a cool part of Chicago and a kind of interesting discussion yeah. that's happening right now. Absolutely. Do, do, do we have, have any more questions? Any more questions? Anybody got a, a follow up? Cool. Well, 
look, I really appreciate all of you guys <laughs> coming and like asking us amazing questions. Um, I think it's it's amazing that we can have like the uh, a kind of outsider's perspective because I mean all of this is normal to, to me. Uh, and yeah, so it's, yeah. it's I always never really, knew our bathrooms were yeah, right, weird until this moment. Yeah, it's always <laughs> refreshing. It's always refreshing to hear. And I, uh, I I hope that when I go to visit Amsterdam, I will be able to ask you questions and we can make this an international dialogue. Okay, do you guys have a crazy radio station too? <laughs> Radio show, no, there's no. Well, so, someone's gonna have to. You guys start, gotta get on. How do you say it. buildings on air in Dutch? Uh, yeah. yeah. Like on air, meaning. Oh yeah, because we say yeah. Bow and bow and lifts. There we go. So you. <laughs> Oh, right. It doesn't have the same punny connotation that our show name does. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, hopefully there will be a, 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 I think there's, there's a radio is a very amazing and democratic medium. Um, yes. And so, uh, and, and, and podcasting as well. And yes. so uh, more people listen to the radio in Chicago than almost any other place on earth. Too. Yes. Hmm. Woo. Yeah. So, oh, do I need to play the theme? Is this yeah. Play, oh, the, I'm sorry. play that theme. There we go. Yeah. That was the Buildings and Air Mailbag. All right. Thank you, guys. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being Thank good you. sports. We really appreciate it. <laughs> and, folks, that's our Buildings on Air for January 2020, um, the Garrett theme show. Uh, yeah. First, Garrett-Nelson, and now um, these fine folks from the Garrett Rebuild. Let's give them a round of applause, guys. Yeah. Come on. Ooh. Yeah. All right. All right. We're back in February, and uh, is Angeli Rao going to join us? Uh, we'll see. Okay. Yeah. We'll <laughs> see you then, guys. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.